This is COVID-19 Seattle. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Aaron Granillo. We are right up against that June 1st deadline to move Washington into phase two. And two of the state's largest counties, Snohomish and Pierce, will be asking the governor to let them partially reopen. Snohomish County Executive Dave Summers says they meet four out of the five criteria needed to advance. We're going to be asking the governor that we get a green light by June 8th. The governor for now says his current order does not have a procedure for that scenario. In the next few days, we will have more uh, decisions about June 1 and where we go from here. And I think some of that will be responsive to some of the concerns that some of the folks in Snohomish County have. But we could get more details as soon as this afternoon. Governor Inslee has set a news conference for 2.30. Yes. State's three biggest counties, among others, have coronavirus infection rates that are above the threshold that the governor has laid out. And one of the things that I I understand is being done is they're going to back out of those numbers the infections at nursing homes because those are considered to be a special circumstance. And Aaron, that seems to me it would make other counties eligible sooner than they would be otherwise. Right. That's what Snohomish County has said. Uh, Four out of the five criteria they meet, the one that it doesn't meet uh, is the infection rate right now. Because as of last week, the governor laid out those rules that said uh, you are only allowed to move into phase two if you have 10 new infections per 100,000 people over two weeks. What Snohomish County is saying is uh, if you essentially take out the numbers from the nursing homes and put those in a in a specific category, we do meet that threshold and we should be allowed to reopen. We have some very alert listeners who have been looking at the more detailed statistics by zip code and are pointing out that there are concentrations of infections in certain areas of these uh, various counties and even within the city of Seattle. And it doesn't make sense to close down everything mm-hmm. if the infection has been primarily confined to a few areas. Do you know, I mean, has the state at all been looking into a, a hyper-local reopening, almost like by, by zip code or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I think um, they're concerned that uh, in a case like that, it would look too much like uh, just outright discrimination because mm-hmm. some of those areas also match up with places where people tend to have lower incomes. Looks like we got $300 million back from those scammers who targeted unemployment payouts. Washington officials did not specify how much exactly our state lost to fraudulent claims overseas. They said that, quote, it was hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's unclear exactly how much that $300 million bucks represents. The Employment Securities Department had temporarily paused all payments while they addressed this fraud. Then they changed a rule that allowed claims to be paid conditionally before they were verified. Now they can just deny claims that they think are fraudulent. It has created some confusion, of course, in the aftermath. And Dave, I understand you just spoke with someone who is still waiting on unemployment benefits. Yes, nine weeks. His name is Steve Weaver. He had worked as a bartender, and we, we know what's happened to the restaurant industry. So he is now living in his car in a very nice location. He's down in the Capitol, right by Capitol Lake there. But uh, it's gotten very difficult for him and for many others. They put up a Facebook page where people who have been unemployed and haven't gotten their checks have told their stories. And it is uh, obviously devastating. And there is not a lot of love for the Employment Security Department. Uh, They feel that, okay, of course, they wanted to uh, the, the department wanted to make it simpler to get the benefits by cutting the red tape. But as it turns out, when they cut the red tape, they also opened the door to these fraudsters. What I thought was interesting about when I talked to Steve was that the 
payment that he got, the stimulus payment through the IRS, came within a week of the announcement. He admits he's not an expert, neither am I, mm-hmm. but it may not have made sense to uh, run so much money through the state unemployment departments, which were not prepared for it. Why not just do it through the IRS? Right. Here's what another person told the Seattle Times. Um, says his account was used for a fraudulent claim, and he reported it right away, but then he got a letter demanding that he pay back the money that was stolen. We've heard from the Employment Security Department and Susie Levine saying that you know, if uh, a payment was made in your name and it was linked back to this fraud, that you don't have to pay it back. So hopefully instances like that get, get cleared out. Right. And that's going to be inevitable when you're trying to crack down on fraud, right? Because since yeah. they're impersonating real people, right. when the state tries to get the money back, who gets the bill? Those real people. So, yeah. It's a mess, and uh, I just hope we learn from it, Aaron. Social media platforms have been asked to fact-check their users' content for quite a while. Seems like an impossible task given the sheer volume of content, but during the coronavirus crisis, we've seen more moderation. Platforms like YouTube and Twitter quickly began redirecting users toward verified information directly from the CDC and the World Health Organization. So here's the question. Now that a public health crisis has forced platforms to put a moderation system in place, the system is extending beyond coronavirus news. Twitter is the president's favorite platform. And, of course, we know now he has not appreciated the fact checks on his tweets, Dave. No, he has not. And so he has issued an executive order, which doesn't really change anything right away, but asked the FCC to consider removing some of the legal protections these platforms get. Uh, I think he could actually solve this problem uh, with one simple thing. If he would fact check his tweets himself Mm. before posting them, then Twitter wouldn't have to do it and this problem would be solved. But it's not really clear whether the executive order would really help the president because if they remove the legal protection for these platforms and treat Twitter like a radio station, for example, or like a newspaper, Uh, saying that they have editorial control and therefore they can be held responsible for tweets that offend people or call out somebody and cause harm to them. Uh, A lot of the president's tweets are going to not just get fact-checked, they're going to get taken down Mm -hmm. because these platforms have to protect themselves. I think it would be remiss not to discuss one of the president's tweets uh, overnight. I know this isn't COVID-related for our podcast, but uh, him reacting to the the violence in, in Minneapolis, calling the protesters their thugs, and he said... When the looting starts, the shooting starts. Twitter flagged that tweet uh, for glorifying violence. Yeah, it was a notorious quote, apparently, from a a police chief who was actually making a threat. Uh, I presume the president would be aware of that connection. Of course, I don't know uh, for sure. But um, the irony of that, Aaron, is, as you well know, that even though they blocked that tweet, they sort of put up a Twitter wall behind it. You could still see it if you clicked on it. Uh, that tweet got more publicity than any other tweet he issued today because people said, well, you see this tweet in which he said, yada, 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 I uh, got blocked by Twitter. So I think uh, that move defeated the whole purpose of trying to censor tweets. Yo-ho! Yo-ho! Yo-ho-ho-ho-ho! We had been holding out hope that we would get some fun this summer with Seafair and the Pirates, maybe. Well, we have just learned that those Pirates will not be making their annual landing at Alki Beach this year. Pirate President Keith Titus says the Pirates met on an island, a remote island, decided that a social distance landing 
just would not be the same. To walk up the beach separated from each other in the community would not only be a wasteful but sad time. No sword fights with the little kids, no pictures with your favorite pirate, no high fives. You know, sorry, neighbors, but, you know, we just can't do it. It's it's no way. The health and safety of the community is, is first. Yeah, well, speaking from a remote island myself, the Isle of Marseille, um, <laughs> I, too, am sad that the seafarer pirates won't be making their landing. But that was probably the smart thing to do. And if there's any silver lining to this, it's that uh, in, in the course of reassessing their plans, um, uh, Pirate Keith invited Chris Sullivan heard that. live on the air to become a seafarer pirate in time for next year's invasion. I I don't know. I just, you know how some pirates are fun, but some pirates just plain too scary for kids. Mm. I, think, I think that Chris would be, I don't know. <laughs> the kids would just turn and run, don't you think? Maybe. I, I've seen. I mean, that's my reaction when he walks in. So I've seen Sully's hair lately. I think it's long <laughs> enough to become a pirate. So. Exactly. At least Pirate Keith is promising a big 2021 landing at Alki to make up for this year. We will be back tomorrow and every day after with a 10-minute rundown of the daily local news. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can also find our news coverage on MyNorthwest.com or listen live at 97.3 FM.